0: Well, to many of you, the name uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a familiar one. Uh, He was a Lutheran pastor in Germany, and perhaps uh, maybe you know him for his books uh, like Life Together or The Cost of Discipleship. In Bonhoeffer's day, which is the early 20th century, uh, the Lutheran church was the state church of Germany. If you were German, chances are you were also Lutheran. And in the early 20th century, Germany was suffering, just like much of the world, from a terrible uh, economic depression. And Bonhoeffer and his fellow Lutheran pastors and ministers were, um, were there suffering with the people and ministering to them and hoping beyond hope for for change, for, for God to break in. Well, as we know from history... Counterfeit hope showed up in the form of Adolf Hitler, who was keen to place blame on certain groups of people like Jews and Catholics and pretty much anyone non Aryan in order to coalesce people around a cause and get their minds off of the Depression. His ideology was twisted and evil, but for the first time in a long time, people were caught up in a movement of national pride. People were joining the army left and right. People were getting employment. That meant they were getting money, and that meant they were feeding their families. And it all seemed so promising if you didn't look too hard at the facts. Being a Lutheran state, Hitler also wanted churches and their pastors to support him. And many Lutheran pastors and congregations got caught up in the hype and the prosperity that resulted from Hitler's rule. And unfortunately, they turned a blind eye to his methods. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, young Lutheran pastor, is in a very hard place. He was a German Lutheran pastor. It was his identity. You could say it was his world. But when Hitler's world came into Germany and took prominence, Bonhoeffer experienced a collision, a collision between his world, uh, the world of his German national heritage on the one hand, and loyalty to Jesus on the other hand. Now many other leaders in the Christian world avoided this collision of worlds by choosing to compromise. But Bonhoeffer, who remained loyal to Jesus and Jesus' kingdom, was hopelessly at odds with the emerging spirit of the age. His world of faith in Jesus was colliding with the world of Nazi Germany. And the two worlds were not at all compatible. Not in ideology, and not in Bonhoeffer's heart. And when things got dangerous, Bonhoeffer was convinced by friends to leave Germany, to move to America, which he did. He was there for a short time. Uh, The hope was he would remain safe, and then when the war was over, he could go help rebuild Germany again. But he couldn't last in America very long. His heart troubled him. He believed that being a follower of Jesus meant being with his people when they were suffering. He believed if he didn't suffer with his people, he wouldn't have a voice with which to speak to them after everything got cleaned up. And so he went back to Germany, and he spoke out against Hitler and that regime. And as a result, he was persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Bonhoeffer was arrested and placed in various concentration camps... And eventually he was executed. Just days before the allies came and liberated the camp he was in. I bring up Bonhoeffer and colliding worlds because I want us first of all to remember that following Jesus does not yield a neutral, passive, tranquil existence. Following Jesus will mean that our world Will collide with other worldviews and situations. And those collisions are going to test our loyalties. The second reason I bring up Bonhoeffer and this example of colliding worlds is because we're studying Jesus' Beatitudes. In fact, we're going to conclude our, uh, our series on the Beatitudes this evening. And I want to remind us that the Beatitudes are not disconnected, timeless nuggets of wisdom like some fortune cookie saying. They were spoken in a specific context, and that context was a massive collision of worlds. You recall that first century Israel was under under Roman occupation. There was a strong sense of nationalism among the Israelites. So on the one hand, the average Jewish person was one living under the tyranny of the Romans, and they were longing to get out from under that oppressive rule any way they could. On the other hand, and closely related, the average Jewish person was, well, they were Jewish. They were Yahwists. They were believers of Yahweh, the one true God. And they were waiting for something. For God to come himself and to break into their world and bring shalom, peace. Now, the prophet Isaiah, among others, talked a lot about the so-called day of the Lord. A day when God would visit his people and raise up the afflicted and the marginalized. A day when mourners would be comforted, it says in Isaiah 61, that the humble would inherit the new earth and there would be restorative justice. Hearts would be made pure, and they would turn towards God, and there would be real shalom, or lasting peace, in personal relationships, and relationships with God, and relationships among nations. So they're longing for this faith world to enter their oppressed by Rome world, and then in the first century, a guy shows up named Jesus from Nazareth. He shows up and he is preaching these sermons. He's proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God is actually at hand, that it's breaking into our world. And he's performing these works of the kingdom. He's saying and doing things that only God would say and do in the scriptures. And the people's worlds are about to collide. Here's what happens. I want us to read it together. Would you please stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It will all be on the screen. Let's read it together. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Lord Jesus, thank you for these words and the reality that's behind them. I pray, Lord, as we've been steeping in this the last several weeks, Lord, and we bring it to a close, Lord, that it wouldn't come to a close in us. That the work you began would continue on like an unstoppable reaction in our hearts and our minds and our bodies. Lord, that you would make these beatitude qualities uh, reflected in us. Lord, our hearts cry is that we would be like you. And thank you that that's what you want for us as well. Help us to surrender to you this evening. In your name, Jesus the Christ. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I love it. Like the Spirit always just shows up and opens this door. Come on in. Okay. it's kind of weird. So, like I said, the past several weeks, we've been uh, exploring these Beatitudes one at a time. And I, I just want to say thank you. Um, I want to say thank you for sticking it through with me. I know that one verse a week for like seven or eight weeks is is a lot for, for a lot of people. Uh, we're kind of a fast-paced culture. Uh, I, I want to say my motives haven't been entirely pure. There's a selfish motive and a pastoral motive. The selfish motive has been that as I work through these Beatitudes myself, I know that if I do them all in one or two weeks... Uh, it's just going to wash over me like, uh, and, and not sink in. So part of it's been selfish. I want to live in these beatitudes and let them soak in my heart. Which spurns my pastoral reason. I'm making an assumption that half of you, if not more, are probably just like me. And if we just skip over the beatitudes real fast, they won't sink in for you either. So let's hope that um, God will continue this work of just processing this great news in us. One of the hardest things for us to grasp, I think, is despite what we may have learned over the years or assumed over the years about the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are not a list of things that Jesus is saying, do this and then you can be my friend. Do this and then you can enter the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are an invitation to join God in what He is already doing. That makes all the difference in the world. If there's one thing you can take away from all of these sermons and the Beatitudes, take that away. They're gospel. They're good news. They're not good advice. The Beatitudes are kingdom qualities. Another way of saying that is they reveal the character of Jesus. So the first four Beatitudes express Jesus' grace and mercy. In a world that exalts the strong and the arrogant and the powerful to the exclusion of most of us, actually, Jesus declares that the poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And As we come to terms with our own spiritual poverty and place our trust in Jesus, He develops kingdom character qualities in us. In short, we become more and more like Jesus. That's what discipleship is. We mourn over our sinfulness and the state of the world, but we're promised comfort. We become more humble as we follow Jesus and trust that we will inherit the new Earth rather than trying to control this one all the time. Then we hunger and thirst for God's justice for His kingdom to come and His will to be done right here on Earth as it is in heaven. And when we get past these, we get to the act of beatitudes. We're to show mercy to be actively involved in showing grace to others in the world, just like Jesus shows grace to us. And we treat others with love, the same love that God loves us with, and as He gives us pure hearts. We're to be like God and working for shalom, peace and personal and in the church relationships and in world relationships. And each beatitude, it seems, builds on the one before and seems to get better and better and better. Which is why the last one, or some scholars say the last two, are kind of weird. They seem out of place. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven kind of a shocking end to the Beatitudes. They were going so well. And then all of a sudden, we're talking about persecution. And I ask this question. If God develops the first seven qualities in us as we surrender to Him, if He makes us, you know, more humble, if we're actually able to be more humble and merciful and pure in heart and a worker for peace, wouldn't people in the world absolutely love us? Right? I mean, doesn't it make sense that if we're all those great things... That the world is going to say, Yay, church. Yay, little Christians. Um, We love you because you do so many great things. Well, sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's true. And I just want to say this. That's not a bad thing at all. Uh, In fact, I think it's a pretty good thing when people say, Hey, that church is all right. They um, They really loved us well. But I think you and I have probably all experienced a time in our life where we're trying to make peace with someone or trying to do the right thing and the receiving party just isn't having any of it. They maybe just don't want peace with you. It's important to remember in situations like this, that this beatitude is just that. It's a beatitude. It's just like the other seven. So these things are not things that we're looking to do in our own strength so it's not like the first seven beatitudes you know I've been saying uh, there are qualities that as you surrender to Jesus He, he develops the qualities in you uh, He's not all the, all of a sudden switching gears and saying okay go get persecuted He's saying that this is something that as you surrender to Jesus it's going to happen to you from time to time He's not saying go look for persecution He's not saying if you're persecuted all the time or if you're not persecuted all the time you're doing something wrong He's not saying, if people like you or appreciate you, you're doing something wrong. What Jesus is saying is that we can expect persecution at times if we take following Jesus seriously. We can expect persecution at times if we take following Jesus seriously. Of the twelve disciples, one betrayed Jesus, so... And then he hung himself. Uh, Eleven were persecuted for their faith. And ten of them actually died for their faith. The last one, John, was deserted on an island for the rest of his life in exile. But he got to write Revelation and some other books. so that's cool. Um, <clears throat> Stephen in the early church was martyred. He was stoned to death. Paul was a persecutor of the church, and then he had this repentance conversion experience, and then for the rest of his life, you could, if, if it could happen to a person, he, I mean, he's shipwrecked, he's beaten, he's stoned, he's kicked out of cities, nobody likes him, everybody likes him, everyone wants to hit him, bad stuff to Paul. Ultimately, the key is not blessed are the persecuted, but blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted In doing God's restorative justice. In fact, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. But he doesn't stop there. He said, Blessed are you when people do all of those bad things because of me. Because of me. So that doesn't mean that you're blessed when you're just plain persecuted, right? Or you're not just blessed when you get in trouble with the authorities for your own version of righteousness. Corey's mom got us these great seats at the Mariners game. Uh, center field, which is okay, but three rows from the field. And so we were there opening day, just packed house. And of course, you know, by like the seventh inning, half the people left. Um, We were three rows from the massacre, man. It was just one dropped ball after another. But But anyway, so everyone cleared out of our section, and we're there sitting, and um, I think Corey and her mom put, took one of the kids to the bathroom for the 10th time or something. But anyway, these, these three, like, young drunk guys come down, and they say, oh, we'll move down to this section. Well, the section where we had the tickets was the family section where you're not supposed to have beer in there and stuff. So I hear them behind me saying, oh, man, that, that security guy is, like, totally on our case. He's chasing us around the thing because they had had too much, and they were trying to get uh, cut off these kids from from drinking all this beer. So these boneheads bring their beer into the family section, like they're not going to get persecuted. And uh, the security guy comes over and, of course, takes their beer away, right? Um, now, I don't think that theirs is the kingdom of heaven because of that persecution. Uh, at least theirs isn't the kingdom of heaven because of their beer situation. Their delusional beer world was colliding with Safeco's beerless world, but that's not what the Beatitudes are talking about, right? It's talking about when we follow Jesus and live life like he calls us to live. It's when, we, it's when our seeking first the kingdom of God world collides with worldviews and values that are opposed to that kingdom. We talked about it last week. Everybody wants peace. Everybody wants peace. They just want their own version of it. Right, People want to define peace in their own terms, and it usually has to do with making sure that they and theirs, maybe it's your your group of friends or your family group, has tranquility and has enough stuff to go around so that you're comfortable. Right, But what Jesus calls us to transcends personal definitions of peace. Jesus is the peacemaker, and he makes peace by dying for us, and not just dying for us, and being our king. Alright? This is where Jesus' disciples get crosswise of the world. Yes, we do a lot of nice and loving things uh, for people, and the world should be happy about that. But the kind of peace that Jesus calls us to means that we will need to confront world powers when they're at odds with Jesus' kingdom. That's just a fact. Sometimes that has to do with public policy like releasing more money for services for the poor. Sometimes it has to do with international policy, like marshalling this great nation of resources and influence to take a stand against things like human trafficking instead of being more concerned with our economic interests. Sometimes it means taking a personal stand against racism or taking a stand morally uh, that puts you at odds with coworkers or with friends or people in your community you know your context better than i do so i'm not going to give us a list of what these things we could be persecuted for looks like you know you know the point is that when you take jesus or when you take following jesus seriously it's going to mean making choices that affect policy and pocketbooks and the way we treat each other and here's the facts. Whenever you live in a way that challenges people's policy or challenges people's pocketbooks or the way they treat other people, you are going to come into tension. Your worlds are going to collide. Expect backlash. That backlash can take all kinds of shapes and sizes from feeling marginalized and looked down upon to imprisonment or death. I really don't, I really don't want to focus on the different ways that persecution takes place in our world. In fact, if uh, we just did that in less than a year ago, if you want to look on the sermon archives, the, the one on John 15, all about persecution. I don't think that Jesus' point in this beatitude is to talk about all the different ways that persecution takes place. I want to focus on what I believe Jesus is focusing on, and that is the good news of this beatitude. Jesus actually says that when these things happen to us As a result of following him We are to rejoice And be glad in fact in the beatitudes There are only two imperatives two commands. This is them right here Rejoice and be glad when this stuff happens to you because of following Jesus On the surface that sounds like a bad joke or worse yet insanity. Rejoicing in persecution would seems like it would be to deny reality or to deny pain. And that is not the record that we have from the God of Israel throughout scripture. What about all those psalms of lament and weeping and crying out to God? So what is Jesus on about when he says, rejoice and be glad? Well, here's what I think. We're able to rejoice and be glad partly Because we're included in the company of the prophets. Jesus says rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's putting us in the company of the prophets. And that is great company friends. That inheriting the kingdom of heaven. Even more than that though. I think we're to rejoice and be glad. Because we get to suffer on Jesus' behalf. After all he's done to us after all he's done for us here's what i think it boils down to loyalty sitting at the game on friday watching the mariners baseball team i started thinking by the by the end of the first inning actually how could we make this team better how could we make this team better well get better players right you need to get stronger players and more talented players and you just need better players on that team and that's how you make that team better But I realized something, we, the church, we're not a team, we're not a team. Teams are focused on getting the best people, the brightest people, in the best positions to fulfill a common goal, a one-time goal, a championship, or the best record. Or something like that. But we are not a team. Jesus has not called together a team. If Jesus had called together a team, he would have picked the cream of the crop, the most productive, the smartest, the most powerful, people in with the best lineages of history. But Jesus picked a bunch of different people with marginal religious backgrounds and questionable heritage. He didn't pick guys that the world would claim as the most wonderful leaders. He picked people who would follow him. Catch that. He picked people that would follow him. You could have, the Mariners could go get the most loyal people in the world. They wouldn't win one baseball game. That's not how you run a team. But if you're starting a movement, and God is the main actor in that movement, if it's all his resources and his power, you don't need the most skilled people. You don't need the smartest and the brightest and the most powerful. You need loyal people. And loyal people take all kinds of shapes and sizes. And they take all kinds of different genders. And they take all kinds of different ages and ethnicities. Jesus called people who weren't deluded into thinking they were superstars. He trains and equips us and builds beatitude, character, in. In us, and he can do that for anybody. But what makes us our uh, disciples of Jesus is not our skills, not how long you've been a Christian or how well you know the Bible, those things help. But what makes you a disciple is our trust in Jesus. Only those who trust in Jesus will be able to say with any kind of integrity, Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the question for us is not, are you willing to be persecuted for Jesus? I think the question is, when your worlds collide, and you lose part of yourself, you lose part of yourself as a result of following Jesus, can you say, Jesus is enough? I think that's the question. When your worlds collide, and you lose part of yourself because of Jesus... Can you say Jesus is enough? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was an amazing man. His guards wrote stories of how gracious he was from them. Bonhoeffer would talk to his Nazi prison guards and pray for their families. He would ask about their kids. He'd be in these cells, and and when bombing raids from the Allies would come over... They'd move all the Nazis uh, to safety in these bunkers, but they would leave the the prisoners in their cells. They they weren't safe at all. And his, his fellow prisoners write about how calm Bonhoeffer was, how he would pray for them and he wouldn't get all freaked out. But don't be fooled. He wasn't a superstar or superhuman. He struggled just like you and I do. In the end, he fought the good fight. He remained loyal to Jesus. But I want to close with this very raw poem that he wrote. It's called, Who Am I? And I want to ask you to, you know, pray. Think of it as a prayer. So you might want to close your eyes as I read this. And think about our own loyalty to Christ. Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equitably and smilingly and proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, and powerlessly powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying and thinking and making faint and ready to say farewell to it all. So then who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others and before myself, a contemptible, woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, Thou knowest, O oh God. I am Thine. Lord, we thank You for our brother Dietrich Bonhoeffer who uh, so eloquently summed up the inner struggle that many of us feel. Sometimes with Your help willing ourselves begins against everything we are to make a right decision or to show an act of kindness or to speak up and say the right thing when it's not popular. Lord, we are walking contradictions, walking struggles of faith You know how hit and miss we are. How fickle we are. Lord, we let our guard down before you. Knowing that you already know who we really are. We lay our masks down. And beg you to help us to be loyal. Help us at the end of the day to be able to say with integrity, Jesus, you are enough. If we're all gone, you are enough. Only you, Lord Jesus, can make that prayer come true. For as I even say it, I know it's impossible within me. Amen.